0: Geek Brains and listen up It's time for another stellar edition of .NET Rocks The internet audio talk show for .NET developers With Carl Franklin This is Karen Cavallaro Here to announce show number 47 With guest Brian Noyes Recorded January 6, 2004 And published Monday January 26, 2004 .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net Training developers to work smarter this episode is also brought to you by Data Dynamics, makers of activereports.net and other great .net and activex components online at datadynamics.com. And now the man who says I told you so to NASA for using Java to communicate with the Mars Spirit rover, Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, listeners. And once again, thanks to our canned applause machine. And uh, I'm Carl, and you're listening to .NET Rocks. So uh, this is the first show that uh, I'm flying solo without Mark. I feel so naked here. I don't know. Uh, We're going to have to have uh, the guest fill in as the the color, if you will. So I'm going to introduce early Brian Noyce to everybody. Hi, Brian.
2: Hi, Carl. How's it going? How are you? I am doing fine. Yeah, awesome. I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah, I we were talking before the show. You've you've been a listener to you've listened to every show since the first one.
2: Indeed I have. I uh, I stumbled upon your show in the early days and, and caught up uh, I think I, you know, found about it uh after the first few shows, caught up quickly and have uh, waited with bated breath for every episode.
1: That's so cool. Um most people I talk to say, Yeah, I'm falling behind. I gotta listen to them. But uh it's great to, to hear a true fan out there.
2: Well I've got the Advantage or disadvantage that i got to commute to most of my uh, consulting customers, so it makes a good commute filler.
1: Yeah, it does. I want to uh, read a couple of letters that we got here. Uh, I got a a letter from Iraq, as a matter of fact. Uh, The guy says, Carl and Mark, I'm a developer who got called up with my Army Reserve Unit and is currently in Iraq with the Army. I bought a laptop while over here because I realized I could be keeping my skills up in my spare time. I've downloaded every episode of your show, and I'm downloading the latest one now. I like the show, even if you bash C# developers. Ooh. <laughs> well, for the record, we don't bash C# developers. We may pick on C++ developers, but you have
2: we noted preferences.
1: Yeah, we have preferences, but we don't bash anyone. We love C#. But he says, even in Iraq, I have clean hair. Thank you. <laughs> Anyway, thanks for a good show. There aren't many software developers here, but I'm making it. Best regards, Jeffrey Palerno. And I I called him back and I asked him if he would mind uh, that we mention it on the show. And he said, Carl, I would be honored to be mentioned on your show. If you would, please mention Brett Rogers, who is one of my Army Reserve co-workers, in quotes. I don't know why it's in quotes, but co-workers. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Uh, back home, I'm a software developer for Dell, and we love Dell. Do you have Do you have any Dell computers?
2: Yeah, I'm uh, pretty. I was a dedicated Dell user till I got on the uh, the tablet craze, but I like my uh, little Toshiba now.
1: Yeah, well, the um, I have I've been running my business on my Dell laptop for years, and I mm-hmm. love it. Well, not the same one, but obviously. Anyway, so I'm a software developer for Dell, and Brett works for Universal Computer Systems in College Station, Texas. I do mostly ASP.NET development, but three days ago, I had a need to transfer a large file on a thumb drive, and the file was larger than the thumb drive. I guess he's talking about a a USB. Right. So I just decided to try out programming a Windows Forms app using .NET 1.1 with C Sharp. I got it working in about an hour. (laughs) That's awesome. And then made some improvements, such as putting the splitting functions on a separate worker thread, menus, et cetera. The guy's writing code in C-Sharp for an hour. He's making writing threads. Writing multi-threaded code. How cool is that? Well, you know, it's just like, you know, in C-Sharp, it would to be thread T. Right. You know, T. start. You know,
2: it's like, well, we do have that, you know, that extra line of code in C-Sharp where we got to construct the thread start object and... Well, you guys can just pass address out so do you another have one of those clear advantages of vb.net
1: do you have to do that in c sharp yeah you can't just we say don't have
2: an address of operator so
1: oh, oh okay all right i got it so um i got it working in about an hour and then made some improvements blah 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 threads okay anyway i attached the the anyway i attached the little utility Brett has been working on learning ASP.NET. Oh, and while programming, I was listening to .NET Rocks on Winamp, and I managed to wash my hair, too. <laughs> <laughs> and some some listeners are going, huh? Yeah, really. Well, uh, if yeah, you don't... It's been a
2: while since you've made the hair joke.
1: That's right. It, it, for, the, for those who don't understand the hair joke, go listen to the very first Bill Vaughn show, the very first show we did with Bill Vaughn. It's like the 8th, ninth, or 10th show or something around there and you'll get it. It's a great show in its own in its own right, anyway. You mentioned Anacrino on the show, so I downloaded it and it decompiled this file pretty competently. So I made a build with Dotfuscator, and that build caused Anacrino to crash, so I found Dotfuscator to be quite effective. Uh, for your information, I especially enjoyed the episode where it was just you and Mark talking about your training experiences. Oh, so this is Listener number two that actually liked that show.
2: <laughs> oh, you had a few shows in there before that one,
1: right? It was particularly interesting because I intend to become a programming trainer sometime in the future. I look forward to listening to the next edition of .NET Rocks. Best regards, Jeffrey Palermo. Uh, thanks, Jeffrey, and and thank you for doing such a great job in Iraq.
2: Absolutely, that's that's very cool. Um, I'm still in the reserves myself, and. Uh, I can definitely relate to the, the, the situation of being over there. It, it's amazing to me that they have the uh, the connectivity and stuff that they do now. But uh, that's yeah. just very cool.
1: It is very cool. And, you know, we, we may not all agree on uh, what our administration is doing in this country, but, you know, I think I can safely say that 99.9% of Americans uh, support the troops. So thank you again. Absolutely. Well you mentioned, Brian, that you have uh you're in the reserve still. You're a pilot.
2: Uh actually a, a backseater, but uh yeah, I used to fly F fourteen Tomcats in the Navy.
1: Wow. That must be cool.
2: Yeah, it's a little different path for people in our uh in our profession.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Uh speaking of Bill Vaughn, he also was an army brat.
2: Right. He was uh Army HELO pilot in Vietnam, I believe.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Had a good uh Good discussion with them over a few beers out at VS Live
1: uh, last year. Uh, i got a couple other letters here, real sure. quick ones. This one is from Barry Davies uh, from the U.K. He says, just want to drop you guys a line from the U.K. and say the whole concept of .NET Rocks is great, and the episodes are always packed full of really useful info. Uh, it's great to listen and learn whilst working. Having said that, are you planning to go to video rather than just audio? Don Box showing off XAML would have been great in the latest episode. Anyway, well done, and keep up the good work. Hope you guys had a great Christmas and New Year. Um, Ooh, that's
2: an interesting concept.
1: Well, it is, and I'll tell you what I think about that. Um, I think that people naturally think that video is the next step after audio because, obviously, television came after radio, so it's better than radio, and radio (laughs) died and all that stuff. But if you think about how video requires your absolute attention all the time. Right. You're a busy professional, and you're all, you already have your visual field taken up with your computer screen while you're working, yep. and and this is why uh, how to videos and webcasts and stuff aren't as well utilized as they are because it requires I have to stop doing everything I'm doing and pay attention to this video, um, whereas audio is sort of peripheral and you can have it on you can just have it on in the background while you're working you can turn it up you can turn it down you can do whatever you want and you, you can, can drive go extremely mobile with it, extremely mobile, more flexible in, in, uh, we like it anyway. One more from, uh, Raja Kakiati, uh, who says, please accept my congratulations and appreciation for the fine job you guys are doing on the show of the shows. I have listened to you about the different emails you get on how people are enjoying the show in their cars, especially during their office commute. As you were just saying, Brian, that's what you do. Yep. This compelled me to fire this mail since I enjoy the show with a slightly different activity. The reason for this is also because I don't currently work and actually quit (gasps) my VB6 job to study for MCSD.net certification. I listen to the show mostly during my morning walking jogging sessions. (laughs) Every show is so info packed that listening and thinking about it simply makes all the traffic, noise, and in short, the world go away, as they say in a popular ad. I, yeah, also... I
2: was actually, I was remembering, uh, I was scamming through your list of past shows trying to remember where I picked up and noticed Dan Appleman was your second show. Yeah. And uh, I remember I was listening to that one walking on the beach out in California during a trip, so I can relate.
1: Wow, that's cool. I also listen to the show while doing household chores and what's better than a dose of .NET while cleaning dishes. I actually suggest the listeners try this. Well, that's pretty good.
3: Yeah. Pretty cool.
1: So those are the letters. Now let's talk about you. Sure, it's all about me, baby. It's all about you. This show is about you. Um, you you are relatively unknown as of now in this business, but we're going to change that. Cool. You uh you deserve to be better known because man, you are one smart mother.
2: <laughs> you know your show's <laughs> going to become like Dennis Miller. You watch Dennis Miller at all? <laughs> yeah. All yeah. the guests go on there and they can't wait to cuss. That's,
3: <laughs> that's
1: that's right. going to become your show. That's right. Where the fuck have you been hiding, Brian?
2: <laughs> I've been a pretty stealthy guy uh part of it was due to my uh you know my late entrance into the arena from my navy background and right, and I just spent a lot of my time focusing on writing and didn't uh do too much in the the public speaking and that kind of thing until fairly recently so that's that's part of it is I've just kind of crept under the radar with uh writing, and I don't think people really paid too close attention to a byline until they see it a bunch of times,
1: so. yeah. That's true. But you've been a huge hit everywhere you've spoken, and everybody has great things to say about you. In fact, I was just on the phone with Tom Robbins of Microsoft New England and Pat Hines, who's the regional director here, and we were trying to think of local people who we could get to help with Dev Days. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, he's not in our district, but we're actually looking for somebody to do the smart device uh, application uh, talk. And I said, well, you know. Yeah, I'd love to come on. Yeah, so but uh unfortunately we can't use anyone who's not in our district but but oh, Pat bummer. but Pat said, "Oh yeah, Brian rocks." And uh he's right. Well,
2: we've got that we've got that uh military academy bond going since he was a of course, you know, it's it's both a bond and a and a sworn enemies thing since he was a West Point guy and I was a naval naval academy guy.
1: That's true. Well, there's one thing that's very true about um any of the guests that we've had on who have been in the military is that you always, like, return emails and you give us exactly what we asked for. Your bio was right there on my desk when I asked for it. It's like, you know, uh, not everybody has that uh, discipline.
2: Uh, Serious brainwashing at an early age.
1: (laughs) It's the drinking of the Kool-Aid, folks.
2: Exactly. different form of Kool-Aid.
1: A different form of Kool-Aid. A much sweeter, much more satisfying Kool-Aid.
2: Oh, it didn't seem like it at the time, but (laughs) that's one perspective.
1: Maybe a much healthier Kool-Aid, we could say. There you say. go. Certainly isn't going to kill you. Well, anyway, let me give you a formal introduction. Brian Noyes is a software architect with iDesign, Incorporated, a .NET architecture consulting and training company. He is a contributing editor for ASP.NET Pro, C Sharp Pro, and Visual Studio Magazine. He is working on a book on building data-driven Windows Forms applications with .NET 2.0 that will be part of the Addison-Wesley .NET development series, due to release in 2004 or whenever .NET 2.0 releases. He is a member of the INETA speakers bureau and speaks at development conferences including DevConnections and VS Live. Once upon a time, Brian flew F14 Tomcats in the US Navy, as we said, and graduated from Top Gun in the US Naval Test Pilot School. What's What's Top Gun? Is that a school for f- pilots? Top Gun? Yeah.
2: It's like the movie.
1: I know the movie, but you yeah, graduated that's, that's from
2: pretty top much, it, It's basically, it, it, formally it was called Navy Fighter Weapons School. It was uh, based out of Miramar. Pretty much the Hollywood actually uh, got most of that movie right. Okay. There was certainly some uh, Hollywoodisms. In yeah, that,
1: I didn't know that was a real place.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Wonderful. So your focus lately has been on writing Windows Forms apps, in particular auto-deployed uh, Windows Forms apps, and the, we've been talking a lot on the show, mm-hmm. all f- ever since we started, really, about how cool auto-deployed Windows Forms are in the intranet. But now with .NET 2.0, uh, the code name would be, you know, we're taking this uh, idea to its extreme, aren't we?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, basically, ClickOnce takes the the best concepts of what people. Uh, alternately referred to as no-touch deployment or hrf deployment or zero deployment. They never quite settled on a real name for it, but right. uh, basically it takes all the good concepts from that as well as uh, something called the Windows uh, or the updater application block and uh, unifies them into a model that's part of the runtime and really kicks them butt.
1: So, I, you know, the thing is about any of these technologies is we start out with the sort of the core, you know, feature set if you want to work at a... As Don Bach says, if you like to be, if you're one of the more ambitious developers or early adopters, yeah, exactly, you'll do the dirty work to get it working. But now they're sort of, you know, adding a lot of high level features to it, and uh, and and security is also a big issue that they had to address. So, right. so t- give us a rundown of sort of the new features in ClickOnce and how it differs from the auto deployment we know. All right, well, let's start with let's start with defining auto deployment in general, and then okay. we'll move on to ClickOnce.
2: Sure. The general idea there with with any kind of auto-deployment technology is you want to get the best of two worlds. You want the best user experience for the end user, which basically means having a Windows application, a Windows client that can use the full power of the desktop and the operating system to give an interactive and stateful model for the user interface. But then you also want the best of the web world, which is easy deployment and updates where you just have to touch one server or maybe a couple of servers every time you need to do a deployment or updates. You don't want to have to go touch every single end-user's desktop to deploy an application. Auto-deployment basically gives you a model where you can uh, get both of those things.
1: Yeah, and and uh, one of the better uh, features of the .NET framework and programs that are written for it, Windows programs, is that they don't have to be registered. Uh, exactly. We don't have any registry settings. We don't have any... ActiveX uh, DLL hell issues in other words the programs download and they run in a sandbox
2: right and, and i think that's kind of how click once came together is there were a lot of you know core technologies or core capabilities that were there in .net 1.0 and 1.1 that sort of people looked at and went wow you know there's there's ways we can cobble these things together to create a model that really adds a lot to the platform and uh, you know, the, the X copy deployment is just kind of an inherent thing in .NET, and the no-touch deployment came along, the auto deployments, um, where it was just, you know, using the ability of the runtime to recognize a, a .NET assembly and treat it differently. Um, so now they're bringing that all together into click once.
1: And uh, I, in my classes, my VPNet master class, I always do a demo of auto-deployment, and people just don't... It doesn't sink in how really easy it is until they see it. Right. And, you know, we, we do a lot of talking about it, and, you know, there's a lot of hot air and lip service given to it. But the reality is is that it's just butt easy, isn't it?
2: Well, it's, it's butt easy to do the butt easy things. But I think that, you know, the problem a lot of people run into with the, the existing capability is you run into a wall pretty quick for real-world apps and, and things that real-world apps would want to do.
1: Right. And we're talking about security.
2: Security is one. Um, just a user experience. Uh, another thing that I, I forget which one of your uh, previous guests talked about with the existing capability is like if your Windows app depends on a number of class libraries, those will also be auto-deployed with it on demand. Right. But if they're big, then you get this big lag. You know, someone clicks on a button that results in a new assembly being loaded, and you got to wait for that thing to, to download over the web and, and then execute.
1: And JIT compile and all that right right. Right. so so uh, in other words, y- you may want to pay attention a little bit when you're designing your application exactly to how granular you make your your libraries don't make these exactly big
2: and, and that's definitely it's still true with quick Once. Quick once um, eliminates pretty much all of the the known major problems or impediments to uh, to employing auto deployment today. They give you a lot of options on how the deployment occurs, uh, security aspects, which which we should probably drill down into, and especially the update scenarios. There's just a whole bunch of different combinations on how updates occur, when they occur, whether they're required, and so forth.
1: All right. So why don't we start with the experience of using auto-deployment now, and what are some of the walls that you run up against? Uh, You you just outlined a couple of them, but let's uh, talk about in terms of auto-deployment. What are some of the issues there, and how does ClickOnce Once address them?
2: Okay, so the first one is probably first and foremost is security, as you mentioned. Um, with auto-deployment, the way it works is you, you provide a URL to a user that points to a .NET executable, and they can click on that link, and the executable will download over the web and execute based on code access security. And Code Access Security is going to evaluate, based on the URL it came from, what permissions that that assembly is allowed to have to execute. Now, the default security policy in .NET is going to limit it from doing most significant things. It can pretty much start up. It can present a window. It can create objects in memory, but it pretty much can't reach outside of its own context. can't touch anything on the local machine. can't touch other websites other than the one it came from. So it's pretty limited in what it's allowed to do based on the default security context. Right, okay. So to overcome that, the only option you really have today with, with existing auto deployment is to modify the security policy on the user's machine. So that's, that's one aspect is the, is the security. Um, another aspect is, well, to get that security deployed, um, means touching the user's machine, having an administrator touch the user's machine, and as soon as you need to have an administrator touch every single user's machine, you might as well be using a, an installer. Um, so that's that kind of defeats one of the major points of using auto-deployment is having an end user be able to deploy the application. Right. Um, I mentioned the DLL download problem. That's That's another one of the things that was kind of limiting with the existing technology. Okay. The update scenario is basically online only is your... Your only option with existing auto-deployment, you have to be online. You have to be able to talk to the server where the uh, application came from every time you want to run that application. So there's no disconnected mode, which is one of the key features that ClickOnce supports, is you can configure uh, a ClickOnce deployed application to run both offline and online.
1: Have you heard of uh, Rocky Latka's little tool called uh, Netrun?
2: I uh, have not played with it myself. But, uh, yeah, I, I actually you talked about it on one of your episodes,
1: right? Yeah. Let me uh, give you an overview of that. Uh, sure. It's good and it's not good. It's good because it gets around the security issue, and it's not good because it gets around the security issue. Right. So um, what it is is it's it's a little program that simply runs as a console app, and it takes the command line parameter, which is a URL that you pass to it, to an exe, mm-hmm. and then it downloads the url using your fully trusted context right and it runs it and it does reflection it reflects the uh, the references the mm-hmm. referenced assemblies in it the dependencies and pulls those down as well and then it then you have it local and it runs okay um, right
2: so it's running under the uh, the full permissions cuz you're actually running from local machine as far as it's concerned
1: right so the benefit is the end user can deploy the application. You can make a setup program that consists of Run and, a, and a, a shortcut to Run with the URL. Right. And you can put that on the desktop or in a start menu or anything. Okay. So the issues are um, it's nice and clean and it works, but you, you left a nice little hole there, a security hole for anybody who, to exploit and uh, use to download anything.
2: Exactly, and that's that's one of the things they were trying to accomplish with Click Once is, You know, there's a lot of workarounds that people have come up with. That's a very good one. Uh, I know Rocky's one of the the key guys. Him and Billy Hollis and others uh, yep. are some of the key guys who have been really using uh, Auto Deploy for real world apps and, and finding ways around these limitations. Um,
1: I suppose that would work best in an internet setting. If you have a NAT firewall, you're behind it, and you right you, you, you have fully control. trust
2: where it's coming from, and yeah. And, Exactly. The, the things ClickOnce allows in the security arena are basically you have much more fine-grained control over the way it uh, happens. For one thing, you do have an option where um, you can prompt the user. Basically, when you deploy the app or when you publish the app to a deployment server, you can specify exactly what permissions that application is going to require.
3: Nice. And if
2: those permissions are more than it would have when it executes on the user's machine, it will prompt the user and tell them that it needs elevated permissions. Okay. Now, in the current uh, tech preview bits from PDC, it just uh, it, it's pretty much as binary as, as launching a an unmanaged executable over the web today. It's it's kind of like it tells you that it needs elevated permissions, but it doesn't tell you much more than that.
1: Right. And and I find that's a that is a big issue with end users that, you know, get used to hitting that okay button. Um, you know, you let's let's project here. You're out on the web. My mother is out on the web, right? And she's at some right. site and she doesn't know what it is. And some dialogue box pops up and says, Hey, I need uh, permission in order to run this program. Is that okay? And, you know, she doesn't know.
2: Right. She doesn't and know. that's, I think that's probably the hardest thing that Microsoft's had to deal with in, in putting this together is trying to find the right compromise between locking things down completely so that nothing bad can happen and having some flexibility for other scenarios. You know, one thing to keep in mind with ClickOnce is what its primary target environment is, and it's really for large enterprise distributed applications, you know, a semi-controlled environment, not necessarily mom on the on the PC out on right. the Internet, although it could certainly be used in that scenario. Yeah. But uh, they really wanted to enable the large corporation, you know, with the Boeings and Merrill Lynch's and stuff that may have thousands or tens of thousands of desktops and being able to auto-deploy in that environment. So one of the additional features they've added in, it's not in the uh, tech preview bits out, um, but it's I believe it's supposed to be in beta one, is something called a trust license.
3: Hmm. And what
2: that is is basically you'll still need to touch every client machine once and customize its security policy to identify who a trust license issuer is and grant trust to that source. But once that source has been trusted, basically you can deploy a trust license with the ClickOnce app, and it can auto-elevate the permissions. So it's basically saying, you know, an admin has touched that machine once and said that if you get a message from me saying to elevate the permissions, go ahead and do it. Hmm. And it, But it, it does it in a fine-grained manner, Un, you know, unlike the scenario with Rocky's uh, Netrun thing it's not going to bump it up to full trust. It's just going to grant the specific permissions that that app needs so the app can't be used for a luring attack or something like
1: that. Yeah, that's cool. Another way that we got around uh, the security thing uh, in auto-deployment is by using the trusted sites list in the browser, Mm -hmm. although the issue there is uh, you have to do a couple things. You can't just add, let's say we're at Franklin's Net and you add www.Franklin's Net to your list of trusted sites. Great. That still doesn't give the runtime the trust. You have to go into a uh, the one of the wizards in the .NET framework under administrative tools and increase the trust for trusted sites to full trust because it's not by default. So even if you have a trusted site to the framework to the CLR, it doesn't have full trust in that context.
2: Oh,
3: okay.
1: So you still, but if you do that, you know once. you you know you still still requires a little bit of tweaking for the users uh, case, but if you do that, then anything that you download from that uh, site has runs in full trust CLR wise. Right. But that's uh, but that again requires some UI tweaking and typing and things that uh, you wouldn't want your end users to do, just for for security purposes. Sure. Another problem there is that any site that they have as a trusted site in internet explorer is also trusted in the CLR and they can just go in and add sites to the trusted sites list. And
2: Right. And there's still, there's still kind of a backdoor there or at right. least a somewhat of a danger spot with click once because the, the middle ground between, you know, just accepting the default policy or doing this trusted license thing is still a, a prompting thing for the user. Right. And it's only going to elevate the permissions for the specific things you asked for. So it's, it's not a binary on off thing, but still you know one of the things they tried to avoid is anytime you got to prompt the user, it's a bad thing right and uh, but they wanted to keep that flexible option there where if you're in a scenario where you can't afford to have an administrator have to touch the machine, there's got to be a way to get the thing to run
1: that's true and and like you said, if you're in a large corporate environment on an intranet, you know they can use email and other forms of communication to tell people. They should only trust you know such and such site or such and such this and don't right ever and
2: there's also uh, there's also an option through security policy to lock it down so that prompting is disallowed basically uh, the user prompting is not allowed to elevate permissions
1: is the trust license sort of like uh, what you said you had to do before where you modify the security policy to let's say only only give full trust to assemblies that have a particular uh, strong name, yeah, associated. very similar.
2: It, it's identifying a, a trusted source. Where that trusted source is, and again, it's not in the tech preview bit, so I haven't had any hands-on. All I've seen is, is how they've described it so far. So it's a little neb- nebulous what the exact implementation will be, but conceptually, it's exactly what you're describing. Is yeah. you know, one time you touch the machine and say, trust you know, give give full trust permissions to any directives coming from this source. And the directives that will come from that source are to elevate specific permissions for a given application. So right. you know, your click once application comes over the web; it needs just file permissions to see temp, and it has a trust license that says grant file permissions to see temp. Then it'll it'll get those permissions, but it won't be able to it still won't be able to touch the registry or go after yeah. databases that kind of thing.
1: Well, switching gears here for a second, how far do you live from downtown D.C.?
2: I am in Old Town, Alexandria, so a straight line. It's probably, uh, you know, five miles. I can look up the river and see the capital, but it could take me anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour to get there, depending on traffic.
1: Do you drive in Washington?
2: Uh, As little as possible, (laughs) yeah. In in D.C. itself, I try to stay away from. That's one of the most confusing places on earth to drive. Oh, God,
1: I think it's a ploy. (laughs) I think it's a, a security plot.
2: <laughs> Get people lost so they can so do, they can't, do can't do find the things. White
1: House and blow it up, you know. But um, <laughs> I yeah, was that is
2: that's definitely a city. You don't it, a map's almost useless. No, there's, yeah, right. There's no chance of following a sense of direction because it's all one way streets and they kind of twist and curve and go into circles. And
1: yeah, and they and they have two streets with the same name at different ends of town.
2: <laughs> well, I, I get equally confused in uh, in Manhattan sometimes because you got your you know numbered avenues and numbered streets, and I can't keep them straight.
1: So. Right, which one goes which way? Well, I was down there uh, at the DC Users Group, which is where I first met you, actually. Right. And um, uh, Scott Locke down there. Mm-hmm. Big shout out to Scott. Woo woo woo. <laughs> and uh, and I unknowingly because I hadn't. I mean, it'd been a while since so the only time I had been to DC was on vacation. You know, looking at the you know down there at the uh, doing the tours and right and all, all that's, the, the yeah, mall stuff, the mall stuff, and sitting in Congress and watching all that. And, oh,
2: that was exciting! I bet.
1: Yeah, it was. It was pretty cool. <laughs> but it had been a while, and um, so I rented a car, and I and I said, okay, well, I'll just drive from the airport down into DC where my hotel is, and uh, then I'll drive out to the. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but I got so lost. It took me like two hours to get to the hotel from the airport. And, so did you
2: like give up? Because I remember you got a ride home from the uh, users group
1: from Scott, right? Right. Well, what it, what happened was uh, I called Scott and he said, oh, geez, yeah, that was kind of silly renting a car. <laughs> and uh, by the way, you can't drive on a certain highway between –
2: Oh, yeah, it's uh, all HOV only on 66.
1: Right, and that was the time that I had to get to the – so it was basically useless. And and they came in – I took the T out somewhere towards the end of the line, and then you guys picked me up there. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, D.C. can be a a confusing place, definitely. I try to stay out of the heart of D.C. as much as possible. I'm more of a Virginia guy.
1: All right, well, stick around for a second. Don't go anywhere. First Hold thing. the line. We're just going to uh, pay the bills here and we'll be right back. <laughs> so, you heard me talk about ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. It's a managed implementation of the popular Active Reports engine and Report Viewer. Has the same power and flexibility of Active Reports 2.0, and provides complete code integration with the Visual Studio .NET environment. And you can use the Visual Studio editor to write code behind reports in either C# or VB.NET. Has export filters for Adobe PDF, Excel, RTF, HTML, text, and TIFF images all included. And we have uh, ASP.net server controls to help you set up web client viewer options, as well as a Windows Forms viewer control that offers split and multi-page views, text searches, table of contents and a customizable toolbar Uh, it also has support for web services and the best part about all of it is it isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg to implement and we're talking about good solid code here all managed code written in net check it out online at www.datadynamics.com now let's get back to our talk with brian noise right here on net rocks don't you go away Okay, and we're back and uh, talking with Brian Noyes about ClickOnce and auto-deployment on steroids for the next generation of .NET 2.0. And uh, we've been talking about security and in the, in the ways that, uh, that uh, ClickOnce addresses security. It sounds like, sounds like there's some great improvements there. Was there anything else that we wanted to talk about security-wise before we get into the update features?
2: Actually the one thing we didn't talk about just to, to emphasize to people because I think the, the core thing and people actually adopting Click Once is to trust in it.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: you know, that's the whole idea is trying to build a trustworthy deployment model where administrators are gonna trust a, a dumb end user to deploy an application to their desktop. So the other aspect to just for awareness for people to realize about click once is the way those apps get deployed is it just goes into a cache location under the user's profile? You right. Can't touch anything in the you know you can't have custom install steps. Can't touch the registry. You can't install a database. Can't do any nefarious things. And and so the deployment mechanism itself is extremely trustworthy. It's it's, it's there's really no way that it can screw up any applications or data on your machine.
1: Oh, that's great. So that's, that's real. That's an important point. Yeah. Yeah. Because quite often you want to do a bit more than just install, you know, just download and run something. What if you have a, a Windows service? You know, what if you have a performance counter? What if you have some other things that you need to hook?
2: Right, and that's, that's a, another kind of a key thing to realize with ClickOnce is this is a client deployment technology. It's, it's not intended to replace MSI, Windows installer technology. There's a large number of applications out there for which ClickOnce is not going to be suitable. But it's really targeted at deploying a, a rich client to an end user so that they can execute it on their desktop. And, you know, in an enterprise scenario, that that uh, client will most likely be talking to back-end servers, web servers, and, and database servers to, to get the data to do its work.
1: So uh, I know auto-deployment works by just creating a, a web folder on the server, and you just drag and drop your files and DLLs in there that you want to auto-deploy. Right. And uh, when the user uh, clicks on a link or downloads the EXE, uh, the the browser has this built-in mechanism to check versions of resources on the server. Right. And it sends basically the latest version of that file that it has in its temporary Internet files Mm -hmm. cache up to the server, and the server only sends back the the file if it's a newer version. Correct. Um, and, And that's been a... A great feature of the browser in general, and now it's just applied to EXEs and DLLs. So, if you're, I, I want to ask you this: If you're offline with auto deployment, okay, mm-hmm. and you click on a link and an EXE link, will and you have the EXE and DLL in your temporary Internet files? Will it pull the the EXE and DLL from there and run it?
2: Not really. Um, basically, the way it works in once is when you deploy the application, you have to choose whether it's going to be one that is like auto-deployment today where it's available online only, um, and people are generally referring to those as launched applications, or you choose to make it available offline as well, and uh, they're calling that an installed application. Interesting. If, If you make it an installed application, then what also happens when you deploy it is besides copying it down to the local cache on the user's machine and executing it, a start menu item gets added under the programs so that you can launch it from there in an offline manner or or online for that matter. So you get a start menu item. You also get an item in the add-remove programs control panel applet so that you can uninstall it from the machine, which really just means getting rid of the start menu item and the cached files.
1: Hmm. And uh, is this easy to set up on the server?
2: Yeah, the server can ble- be uh, compatible. Completely stupid. It's it's just got to be a web server, file server. Doesn't even have to be Windows. Um, file it's just server too, be able huh? To serve up files.
1: Oh, so it doesn't even have to be a web server.
2: No, uh, you can do it from a, a network file share. You can address things with the UNC path. In fact, you can even uh, use click once with a, a uh, distributable media like a CD.
1: Because I know that's been a um, a problem in the past, especially in ASP, where you're trying to access a file by UNC and um, you know the security is a big issue there as well, right? Because so,
2: the, the path, the you know the form of the path dictates what the location is to to code access security policy.
1: Great, hmm, very cool. Now there's also some uh, configuration that happens on the server, right? There's a config file that you set up.
2: Yeah, there's two. Uh, they're called manifest files. There's a, a deployment manifest and an application manifest. So. Generally, you're probably going to want to deploy these things from Visual Studio because it's got built-in support for that.
1: Oh, great. So you don't even have to write them.
2: Right. It's it's pretty brainless. Right now, there's no direct editors for them. There's supposed to be one in beta 1. Okay. Um, but basically, the, the process is in Visual Studio, you, you select Publish Project from the Project menu. It's going to push the files out to the web server or the file server, and it's also going to generate these two manifests. So the deployment manifest basically describes the deployment as a whole, whether it's an online, offline kind of thing, and also what kind of update policy it has. Mm-hmm. And then it just points to the application manifest, and the application manifest is all the summary-level information about what's the executable, what are its uh, supporting assemblies, resource files, what are their versions, and all that kind
1: of stuff. And it also has um, settings in there for how updates are handled, which is what the segue for updating. Right. And, you know, there have been tools out there that do this auto update stuff. And I know I've written it a few times myself, but, uh, you know, like wise install master, those kind of programs have this feature that can go download updates automatically. But, um, as we saw last year, there was a, a a pattern, the patterns and practices group came out with a, uh, a way to implement bits, the background internet transfer service, right? Which, uh, is fully implemented in ClickOnce, is it not?
2: Unfortunately, the, it's a split story there. Um, first off, there's there's an a, a implementation available today, like you mentioned, through the, the Patterns and Practices group. It's called the Updater Application Block, and it's something where you can go and you write a little bit of code in your application to use the block, and it gives you this, uh, this ability to you know decide if an update's available. If so, download it apply it, you know, restart the app, all that kind of thing. And that's, uh, that's available today, and you can use it with .NET 1.1, and it also uses the background intelligence transfer service. So that thing only works on a machine that has bits. Right. The trouble with ClickOnce, uh, you know, another one of these hard choices Microsoft had to make was .NET Framework 2.0 is going to run on machines other than 2000 and later. Right. It's still, as far as I know, it's still going to support 98 and ME and NT4. And Bits is not available on those platforms.
1: Now, is it just because nobody's written it for those platforms, or is there some architectural barrier to doing um, Bits?
2: Well, Bits is a, is a like, Microsoft-generated thing. It comes in the form of a service pack for Windows 2000, and it's built into XP in 2003.
1: So it has to run as a service. Right. That's the problem.
2: Yeah, exactly. It has to run as a service. So it wouldn't be you know, it wouldn't be a candidate on the on the non NT based baseline. Yeah. And for some reason it's not as far as I know, it's not supported on NT four. So when hmm. it came to Click Once they had to decide whether to basically try to write a bunch of conditional code that somehow detects whether bits is there and if so uses it and I think pretty much what they decided is they're gonna punt on that for be So would be even though it has a number of options as far as the way updates occur, it won't actually use the BITS service to do downloads, even if it's there. It's just going to do a straight HTTP or FTP um, file transfer download, depending on how you access the URL. Hmm. Um, but in the Longhorn time frame, there's some enhancements that are going to come for click once, and that's, that's one of the key enhancements is once on Longhorn will use the BITS uh, transfer service. One of the other key features in Longhorn that's going to enhance click once is um, basically the way things execute. You know, we've talked about how it gets downloaded to the client machine, and it executes, and it's got the secure environment that it's running in. Basically, right. on uh, before Longhorn, the way that's all working is there's a separate executable uh, that runs. It's run by the runtime. When it sees a, a deployment manifest, it's going to execute. It's going to download and it kind of acts as a host environment, kind of like what you were describing for Rocky's uh, Netrun. Right, okay. Um, but it's managed by the runtime, so it sets up the security context correctly. Right. When it comes to Longhorn, it's going to be uh, you know, more tightly integrated with the operating system. There's actually going to just be a library that gets hosted in the browser, and, uh, and you have choices whether the application actually runs within a browser context or externally the way it does today.
1: It's it sounds all very complex and again I want to stress to the to the programmer that implementing click once is really going to be simple. Absolutely. And that's the whole the whole you know what we're discussing is what's going on behind the scenes but your experience is going to be easy and the, the uh, perhaps mo- more importantly the end user's experience is going to be easy.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good point to stress. I mean I'm I'm trying to cover you know all the all the aspects of the options and stuff but uh, out-of-the-box, the, the default experience, the one that probably 80% of the people are going to use, it's, it's dirt simple. And, in fact, you can use it, you know, you don't write a single line of code, you don't have to derive from any classes, you don't have to inherit or uh, implement any interfaces, anything like that. And one of the things when I first got exposed to this was a uh, ClickOnce early adopter lab up in Redmond back in May, and one of the things they had us do is bring some of our, some of our existing... .NET 1.1, 1.0 applications up to the lab and deploy them with ClickOnce. So, you know, you don't you can have apps that weren't even designed for WIDBI that can use ClickOnce, and it's just a matter of using the publish wizard or putting them in the right place on the server with the manifest files, and it just works.
1: Wow. <laughs> That's so sweet.
2: Of course, there is a key requirement there that the client will have to have the dot .NET runtime on their machine. Right but there's also a mechanism there to support that. That's another one of those impediments, you know, today for auto deployed apps is you got to have done at runtime on the client machine. Yeah. It's not there. There's no kind of direct mechanism there to get it there.
1: And as we said before, this is really a technology that is for intranet corporate networks, uh, not something that you would, you know, buy books from amazon.com with, for example,
2: not necessarily, but, uh, I mean, that was one of the things they demoed at PDC, right, was Amazon had a rich client auto-deployed.
1: Right. I think that was a future-minded kind of Right, yeah. It, it was
2: really targeted at the Longhorn, to- Longhorn timeframe where they can count on, um, yes. you know, all the underlying capabilities to be there as part of the platform.
1: Right. If you have Longhorn, you get this capability because it's already built in. That's right. a You know, that's the thing that um, – uh, uh, occurred to me very early on when I was hearing about Longhorn, and, and uh, uh, we, I know you're not a regional director, but we had uh, this, these discussions with the regional director um, mailing list with Microsoft when they were going through this rebranding stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, the issue was that they were only they only want to call an application a .NET application if it uses web services. Oh,
2: right. Yeah, that whole marketing twist.
1: Right. And, you know, there was just a – for the for a developer, we've been spending so much time saying, oh, this is a .NET app, meaning that it targets the .NET framework. Exactly. Uh, and, and as Eileen Crane said on the show that we did with the evangelism team, the developers are, like, the only demographic that gets it what .NET is. Yeah. Because it, they're the technical people.
2: Oh, I have that problem. I mean, you know, my wife does her best to understand what I do, but – Right, just glaze over every time I try to explain what .NET is.
1: Yeah, exactly. So because they're not technical, and the m- problem Microsoft has is they've got the developers they, on their side. Now they need to convince the rest of the world, you know what what this stuff is. And to the rest of the world, it's not the framework. Right. It's the features. It's the it's the benefit. Right.
2: Yeah, the framework's there for us to develop. They just want something they can use.
1: Right. So when your mom asks you, you know, what is .NET? i- I answer it's an upgrade for windows right it's an upgrade for Windows that makes programs you write for or that programs that use it better more connected more secure less prone to crash and have they have more features typically shorter development cycles so you have more features more frequently they'll be more consistent from one app to another et cetera blah 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 so um so I get it I mean I got it. When when Eileen explained it to me that way, that developers were the only group that got what .NET is, right? And and also that you had to be thinking about the Longhorn timeframe, because Longhorn has essentially the .NET framework built into it. Of course, a new version of it, but but it's there, and it's not an option. So when right. you I think it,
2: in the Longhorn timeframe, you you get to where the lines do blur again, and you can stop talking about. Is it .NET or not? It's just it's, it's a, a Longhorn
1: long app. app. That's right. It's a Windows application. So,
2: well, there's some debate there if it's if it's going to be Windows. I don't know if you've been reading uh, Scoville's blog, but he mentioned on there or he's he was kind of soliciting ideas of should it even be called Windows.
1: Well, I, I've heard that before, and mostly the reason is because of for legal reasons. Right. And and that's just we got to change the name so that. You know the lawsuits that are pending against us don't apply anymore. <laughs> That's one, one approach. So, I mean, I, I think it would be silly, uh, suicide actually, to call it anything but Windows.
2: Yeah, I think it would confuse end users quite a bit.
1: And they're already confused. Let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so what else is happening down there, y'all?
2: Y'all. Uh, I'm not quite that far south.
1: Well, can't
2: can't do the southern gigs on me with, uh, like, Mark.
1: Okay, so you're north of the Mason Dixon line. Uh,
2: As far as I know, but I'm no history buff.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs)
2: Um.
1: Well, let's talk about your book. Sure. So, how long have you been writing this book?
2: Uh, just getting started. Just uh, signed the contract here within the last couple of weeks.
1: And it's a general Windows Forms Widby book, or does it cover?
2: No, I'm I'm not trying to compete with Chris Sills. He's got an awesome book there uh, that that covers Windows Forms, you know, across the board. Mm-hmm. This one is going to be focused on the you know the main focus is going to be data binding. Basically, all the data bound controls in Windows Forms, and going really deep into those. And there's okay. a bunch of new ones that are coming in the .NET 2.0 timeframe. So okay. The, the book's really it's going to have, you know, sufficient background material so it stands alone and gives some background in Windows Windows forms development, but it's really going to be focused on how do you build data-driven apps? How do you get data to the app? How do you bind it to presentation elements and really capitalize on the new data-bound story that's available in .NET 2.0? Are you a,
1: are you a fan of data set centric programming? Oh, absolutely. All right. Yep. Absolutely. absolutely. I spend a whole Typed
2: data dataset programming.
1: I have a whole uh, day in my class on ADO.NET and you know I show people how to use a uh, how to call store procedures and stuff and then we just get into data sets for the rest of the day. Right? And uh it's, I love data sets.
2: Absolutely. And and especially type data sets cuz being a you know I've got the the C++ background and anything untyped makes me nervous. So Yeah. Um, I really love the the ability to easily create a type data set and have that type safety and just program against property names. And Instead of indexing into an amorphous blob,
1: have you ever um, been in type dataset hell, where you're developing the database and the code at the same time, um, and your schema is always changing? Oh, no, I know, I got to add another field.
2: Uh, I, I think I've been more in the uh, in a different form of database hell, where you're trying to use data sets and and the dataset update capabilities with existing databases that weren't designed with stored procedures that work too well with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a problem. You get, uh,
2: you get a you know a uh, stored procedure layer there where the gets and the sets are completely different. Right, and all bets are off for really using data sets well.
1: Right, the uh, option to use existing stored procedures isn't used that often in right. the data set wizard.
2: Yeah, you pretty much have to design your stored procedures with data sets in mind if you're if you're going to really take advantage of their their power.
1: Well, this is a, an interesting segue because one thing we didn't talk about is data access in a click-once-deployed application. Um, you know, you have several options there. You can use SQL Server directly with a, with a data source, you know, a connection string right. over the Internet. Um, then you have the Internet firewall issue to deal with. Okay. Or, uh, you know, do you have access to those database ports? Uh, I know that's an issue for some people, especially with viruses going out there and worms spreading through SQL servers that they, with uh, SA and no password, right, I guess that happens.
2: Looking for those well-known
1: SQL ports? Looking for those well-known SQL ports, that's right. You also have remoting as an option, and you ha- also have web services, of course, right, as an option. So uh, while I, I I'm not a proponent of asking people, you know, what's the best, because obviously the situation... Uh, the situation lends itself differently to different options. But, um, you know, do all all of these scenarios work just as well with uh, ClickOnce deployed apps?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably the easiest to get work, working is going to be a web service if it comes from the same machine that the, if it comes from the same web server that the, uh, the ClickOnce app was deployed from. Okay. Because of the security policy, the default security policy is going to let the click once app talk back to the server it came from unfettered um, yeah, as soon as you start talking about moving that web service off to a different web server with you know a different domain name um, or start talking about remoting or direct database access all of those are going to require some form of elevated privileges so as soon as you need to elevate privileges um, then it really just comes down to what's what's the real architecture that you want to go after and there's no clear winner there, you know, across the board. It, it's really going to be application-dependent, but mm. any of those are certainly candidates. Remoting, enterprise services, um, direct database access, but web services are, you know, certainly a, the loosest coupled choice.
1: Have you looked into remoting in, in WIDB? And in, is is there anything new and different uh there?
2: Uh, you know, I haven't spent much time looking at it. I haven't
1: either, uh, as of this recording, uh, but it's something that I plan to do. And maybe we'll get, uh, Ingo or Rocky back to, to fill us in on what's new in remoting.
2: Yeah, there you go. Or, or Juval. Or uh,
1: Javal even, yep. yeah. Yeah,
2: he's, as you know, he's the, uh, you know, the, the lead of our company, iDesign, and, uh, we kind of divvy up our, our areas of focus to try and spread things across the board. So he's definitely our systems programming uh, god, you know, on anything, remoting enterprise services and that
1: kind of stuff. Right, right. Well, good, very good. Um, and, uh, you know, you should be, you should know how to use data sets with web services if you're going to use them. Right. Uh, not necessarily as easy as you might think. Right. Uh, there's issues with dealing with changes and how much data you are sending across the wire and all that stuff. And this is all stuff that we cover extensively in my class, by the way, plug, right. plug, plug. Right. Um, and also there's lots of great books out there. Do you have any favorite books on, uh, ADO net, um, out there or any, or any favorite books on anything at all stuff that you've been reading lately?
2: Well, I definitely, I mentioned, uh, Chris sells book is great on windows forms. Um, I think Shuval's uh, books on programming components and uh, Common .NET are awesome. Yep. Um, Dino Esposito stuff I always love his uh, his XML book is is outstanding for any kind of XML programming with .NET, which I do quite a bit of.
1: We use his ASP .NET thousand page book as the textbook for our ASP .NET master class too. Oh, it's okay. A, it's a great book.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of Dino's. He's uh he's a great writer. Yep. Uh, let's see. I'm reading one right now that's pretty decent on security. Um I don't have it in front of me. It's like Cryptography and Security in in uh, .net.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's uh, pretty pretty readable, not uh, not bad at all. That's good. Um
1: that's How about any um, any tools that you've downloaded on the internet lately or any sites that you visited that you just have to crow about?
2: Um quickcode.net is uh, I love that tool for Putting together some templates for things that I do repeatedly and, and just being able to inject the code with what is that
1: what strokes. does it do what does it do
2: Uh quickcode.net. it's a uh, basically it's a plug to visual studionet and you can define some templates code templates basically that you activate with uh, some sort of shortcut so there's wow. like built-in ones for you know creating a property with a matching member um, mm-hmm. we just type a couple of You know, a couple of keystrokes, you can name it whatever you want, and then you hit Alt-Q and it fills in the code for you.
3: Oh, cool. So, like,
2: I generated one for generating uh, strongly typed collection classes where I just type uh, C-O-L-L and the name of the object that's going to be in the collection.
3: Oh,
1: that's great. And it generates
2: a full types collection class for me.
1: Oh, that's sweet. Hey, send that to me.
2: Yeah, I'll send you a link to uh, to their site.
1: I I like that template, too. That sounds great. Sure. I do that stuff all the time. Yeah. Great. Do you use uh, the Web Matrix or Not Visual really.
2: Studio? I, I tell you, I'm really a Visual Studio cripple um, yeah. when it comes to IntelliSense. you know, I know. Anytime you take away my IntelliSense, I get really scared.
1: I agree. I did some stuff with uh, the Web Matrix, but the code editor is just nothing compared to Visual Studio. It's just a text pad, basically.
2: Yeah, but. they've got some cool features in, in Web Matrix. I know they intend to use that as kind of a. Uh, you know a test bed for things they want to integrate into Visual Studio, and I think some of the stuff that's in there we're going to see in the would be, uh, would be release. But uh, I have not spent a lot of time playing with it. Yeah. I think it's an awesome option to have out there for people who, you know, want to do some development on the side and, and can't afford a a full up license.
1: Uh, Brian, I know that we touched on this before, but uh, just to summarize, um, ClickOnce is going to be uh, fully available for any version of the .NET framework, or is it only going to be uh, for WIDBY? And is that only a server on the server, or what about on the client?
2: It's a be and later only thing, so you got to have the be runtime on the client.
1: On the client.
2: There's no requirement for the server. It just has to be able to serve up files over some known protocol, HTTP or FTP uh, file networking. But the client is going to have to have the be runtime, and there are mechanisms to deploy the the .NET runtime from something called the bootstrapper that they'll also put out there on the deployment server.
1: Oh, that's a good, good thing to talk about. Sure. Um, there's a the bootstrapper project at uh, at MSDN downloads that that's been out there since version one, and I actually wrote my own bootstrapper in Power Basic, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, it's because Power Basic creates very small, you know, uh, native EXEs and DLLs. And uh, but tell me about the bootstrapper in click-once.
2: Well, basically what, what they're going to do whenever you publish a project from Visual Studio or you can do this manually on your own is they're going to push out a bootstrapper setup.exe to the deployment server.
1: A native exe.
2: Right. It's a native exe, so you are going to have to have administrative privileges to run this thing. Okay. It's, it's basically, you know, an encapsulated MSI, and in that bootstrapper when you, when you set up your project, you can choose what all is going to be in there. So, you know, the main thing that's going to be in there is the .NET runtime. If you need to deploy that to the client and, and they have administrative privileges, they can run the setup.exe and they'll get it installed.
1: Now that's an an option, right? So if, if yes. a client goes somewhere and they don't have the Widby framework and they go to deploy a click once, it'll say, this requires the Widby framework. Do you want to install it now?
2: Right. It'll have a separate link to the, ex, the setup.exe file or something. Okay. But uh, the other configurable part of that is you can also, part of the bootstrap process or, or setting up the bootstrap process is saying what other dependencies besides the .NET framework. So some of the ones they've identified so far are things like uh, MDAC, the data access components. Right. Um, the Windows Installer 2.0, which is required to run the, the uh, .NET framework install. Okay. The DirectX things like that—they aren't going to open, as far as I know. We had this discussion at the workshop. They're not going to open it to where you can add any unmanaged installer to that thing. Only Microsoft provided ones
3: hmm. because of
2: liability things. There, we had you know a big discussion about that and and wanting the power of extensibility to be able to add anything there. But they're saying that uh, well, you know, this is a link that someone's clicking on that. Kind of identifies itself as a Microsoft installer. Right. They wouldn't want to take on the liabilities of installing sure. someone else's stuff.
1: Right. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Are are you? Do you find that uh, you have clients that can't wait for this? Uh, that are that are using auto deployment now and. Uh,
2: um, I, you know, it's one of those hard sells because, well, first off, I do a lot of consulting in the government arena. Yeah. And they are such technology. Non-adopters, right? That um, plus they—they they tend to not want to lock into a single desktop, right? Um, so it's a hard sell in the environment I work in most.
1: You got to get Jonathan Zuck in there to uh, explain yeah, and there things. Yeah,
2: there we go. Do some, some uh, evangelizing. Yeah. Um, so in that arena, I, I don't think it'll take on that great certain certain aspects, but commercial environments where they're a little more focused on productivity and you know. Choosing the right solution for the best cost savings and the best effectivity of their workers, then I think it's going to be a huge hit
1: for people who are
2: properly educated on what it can do.
1: Right, I, I see uh, a lot of companies that come through my class anyway using auto deployment um, and, and embracing it. And, you know, and, and it's interesting. I, I get this all the time. People will come and they, you know, I ask them the first day. You know, what are you mostly interested in? and uh, the people who say well we're really interested in web applications right and i'll say well uh, are these going to be for the internet or uh ins- internal and if they say internal you know intranet apps um after the first day they they're singing a different tune
2: exactly and i think that's the biggest thing is exposure as soon as someone who's building that type especially intranet apps people who are building those kind of apps you know if they're not thinking about click once or i'm sorry uh, auto deploy today it's probably because they just haven't been exposed to it and don't realize it's an option and and what it can do for them. I'm a firm believer that, you know, for the long term, for controlled environments like that, for interactive applications, browser-based apps are kind of a dead end. Me too. I I think that, you know, as long as you can control the environment and be fairly certain that your target audience is going to have a Windows machine, and and that's going to become even more compelling in Longhorn. I mean you see that user interface that's going to be there, you're going to want to tap the, the capabilities of it. You're not going to want to dumb it down to what a browser can
1: do. Right. Right. I agree. And, you know, you get all the centralized deployment features that uh, the the web is good for. Exactly. Uh, you're just not using the browser as an application platform. You're using it to distribute uh, a real application. Exactly. And I guess, you know, the reason people don't even think about that now is because of the, the pain of DLL hell and all the deployment of Windows forms issues that they've dealt with in the past. And that has just, we've just moved beyond that, you know, seemingly right and now, now we're here to say, well, you know, you ought to take a look at this because we've solved all those problems and we've made it easy for you right from the, the development environment to uh, publish your applications.
2: Right. And I think that's, that's the key, you know, that's the, the big thing about ClickOnce is just getting people to realize what it's capable of, getting it so they trust it and and understand that it's not going to harm their machine. There's no potential for DLL hell. It's not going to trash other applications, right? And and it is going to execute in a secure environment.
1: And, and you, uh, I think you,
2: people are going to jump all over it.
1: Yeah, and your assemblies are more lightweight because everything that they do is in the framework already.
2: Exactly, the size of .NET. You know, compiled programs, big, meaningful programs, just is amazing.
1: Very small. Okay, Brian. Well, uh, thank you very much for stopping by and enlightening us with ClickOnce.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: And I hope to uh, hear and see and read more of you soon. Absolutely. All right, we'll keep listening to the shows, and thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, we'll see you later.
3: Okay, bye.